درود به مردم شریف ایران من شهیر افشار هستم خوش آمدید به یک برنامه دیگه پالیتکس 365 امروز مجددن یک مهمانی که در یه برنامه قبلی شرکت کرده بود خانم سهر پروفسور سهر عزیز دعوت کردیم به برنامه‌مون ایشون پروفسور قانون هستند در راتگرز یونیورسیتی در ایالت نیوجرسی و یک کتاب نوشتن به اسم The Racial Muslim که در آمازون میتونین بخرینش بهش مراجعه کنین به وبسایت ایشون هم میتونین مراجعه کنین saharazizlaw.com ایشون واقعا نیم محقق و یک صاحب نظر و کارشناس واقعا تمام روابط آمریکا و اسرائیل و فلسطین و تاریخ فلسطین و مخصوصا حقوق بشر و موضوع حقوق بشر که الان در غزا داره اتفاق میفته Sahar uh, Aziz, welcome back uh, to another segment of Politics 365. Thank you so much for joining us. We learned so much. And the last time we talked, we wanted to have you back to help us uh, kind of through this difficult time uh, as our nonpartisan, nonprofit uh, educational platform seeks to do is educate our listeners, especially our Iranian community worldwide, uh, about what they're witnessing in uh, in the Middle East and, and especially the anti-Semitism. Uh, that we're all experiencing. You mentioned, you know, we talked a little bit before, uh, you know, a lot of Iranians when they came here in 79 during the hostage crisis, uh, you know, I mean, most people couldn't put Iran on a map, right? I mean, they could not tell Iran uh, apart from Iraq. Uh, you know, I personally was the subject of, you know, some uh, some uh, some hate uh, talk back before there was social media. Uh, and my, I remember, I'm just, I know people are listening to this on radio, but on the video, they'll, uh, They can see my hair is very, very gray, but I was called a blackhead as if, you know, that was a bad thing. You know, I, I thought it'd be pretty good if I have all black hair. And when, when I was in my 20s, it was during the hostage crisis. It was during the Iran-Iraq war. The U.S. backed Iraq against Iran, hoping to, you know, upend things. And really, since the late 70s, we've just seen a string of uh, anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim, anti-Middle East Uh, growth uh, and people seem to tolerate it in this country in America, you know, and it just I find it the most un-American thing you can do to uh, to uh, to really put down a minority, uh, whether you consider, I mean, technically they don't even consider us as brown or, or as you know, olive skinned or, or a minority uh, in the legal context of American law, so we get no benefits of minority Uh, status. This has been a big discussion in the Amer Iranian American community, but we get all the devices. We get we get all the negative treatment, uh, and especially with what's going on in in Gaza in, in recent months, uh, I think that there's been an uptick in anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Muslim uh, uh, behavior. The FBI has reported widely on it. That's deeply troubling. Uh, you know, our children have to grow up in this country. We have to explain what's happening to them. And I think as parents, we all have a very tough time explaining the America that we love and what's come of it. It is not the America we thought it was if such anti-Muslim rhetoric is so prevalent and tolerated as just, oh, that's, you know, it's okay. So please educate us on your book and your thesis um, so we can understand what's happening and hopefully be able to educate our kids as to how to prepare themselves for the future. Well, thank you so much for hosting me again. And I'm excited to be talking in conversation with you about my book, which I'll show for those on video called The Racial Muslim and Racism Quashes Religious Freedom. 
I wrote the book after, uh, at that time when I started writing it, 15 years of advocacy, litigation, uh, media work, uh, community organizing that I had been fully immersed in since 9-11, trying to defend the civil rights of Muslim, Arab, and South Asian communities who were all being homogenized as this monolithic national security threat that unless you could individually prove to your friends, your family, your coworkers, uh, your supervisors, or even your elected officials that you didn't support terrorism, the presumption was that you did or that you sympathized with it. And that it was explicitly stated by many politicians that they believed Islam taught Muslims to be violent and taught Muslims to be hateful and to support politically motivated violence which as we know is false, uh, simply because there are non-state actors who engage in insurgencies, military operations, or um, terrorism does not mean that 1.8 billion people across the world who follow the religion of Islam support that. And so there was a complete depoliticization, decontextualization of the various types of political conflict that were going on in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, or in other Muslim majority countries. And the, the question that kept coming up while I was engaged again in this advocacy was how my fellow Americans could be so openly Islamophobic when all of us were taught in school that religious freedom is a fundamental American tenet, that the First Amendment was passed specifically to protect religious minorities from persecution and discrimination by religious majorities or by the state. But what I kept seeing was this complete normalization and acceptance of all forms of statements and actions that were clearly anti-Muslim. And that's what caused me to, to write the book. And my answer uh, to that paradox is that um, Muslims have become racialized as these inferior uh, people. And that instead of seeing Muslims as a religious minority of human beings that deserve equal dignity, equal rights, equal respect, that instead Muslims were actually experiencing what many other racial minorities had experienced in the United States, starting with the Native Americans who were nearly exterminated through settler colonialism and the founding of the United States, then Africans who were brought forcibly here to be enslaved for hundreds of years. And following that, you got uh, numerous immigrants from China, from Asia, and other parts of, of the world, including Eastern and Southern Europeans who were Catholic and who were Jewish, who were also experiencing forms of racialization. So effectively, the the the, the the idea of race, which is a social construct, it's not a biological fact, but it is a, what we call a master category in the critical race theory literature that allows society to develop around it hierarchies. And so in some societies, it's classism, it's tribalism, it's uh, other forms of identity. But in the US, race is a master category. And what was happening is anyone who was Muslim was being raced as certainly non-white and certainly not equal. And then uh, as a result, you experience racism. And therefore, 
whatever religious freedom rights you might have on paper, they really were not put into practice except in very uh, narrow circumstances and only after a very zealous litigation in courts where the facts were so clear that it was a violation of the law. Um, so that's effectively what, what drew me to writing this book. And what I argue is there are four factors, four kind of master or macro factors that contribute to the racialization of Muslims. The first is white supremacy or white dominance, which affects, again, anyone who is not raced as white. And, and when I mean race by white, that's not the same as the legal categories of whiteness, which is what you alluded to, because as you know, Europe, uh, North Africa, and the Middle East is white on the US Census, which by the way, and I talk about Syrian Lebanese Christians who very uh, zealously advocated the government, lobbied the government to be considered white and not Asian, which is what they were raced uh, earlier in, in the late 19th century, because they didn't, they wanted to be able to naturalize as US citizens. And if you weren't white, you couldn't naturalize as a US citizen and you couldn't immigrate because there were all of these anti-Asian, anti-Chinese uh, immigration exclusion laws. So you have this white dominance or white supremacy. And then you have xenophobia, which is another fundamental kind of paradox of America where it, it needs immigrants, it wants immigrants, especially for its economy, but then there's there is a lot, there's always been anti-immigrant animus, especially against the newer uh, waves of immigrants, uh, and, and particularly when they're not from Europe. And then you have Orientalism, which was imported from Europe, and that is very unique to uh, the experiences of people from the Middle East. And then finally, you have American empire or American imperialistic growth and hegemonic growth in Muslim-majority countries, which really started in earnest after World War II. So when you analyze those four factors together, and effectively they kind of culminate in this uh, horrific terrorist attack on 9-11, but also culminate into this toxic combination that then, what I argue, permanently entrenches anti-Muslim racism or Islamophobia, or effectively the racialization of Muslims as the terrorist, dangerous, disloyal other. Thank you for that explanation. It all makes perfect sense now that I look back at really my experience, my 40 plus years experience in America, all of those things come together. Um, sometimes I think, you know, imagine a day without immigrants, right, in America. You take out how many corporations, take out how many economic, uh, you know, lifelines, take out social, cultural, artistic, you know, this country wouldn't be what it is without immigrants. You know, that's why it says what it says on the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, even though many, uh, some presidents have tried to erase that uh, and uh, restart America or make America great again without immigrants, it sounds like. Uh, but, you know, the, the secret sauce of this country has always been the immigrants. Uh, that's why it has become what it is. But uh, as soon as these international or global events happen, you know, they draw a straight line between, let's say, one terrible wrong and say all 1.8 billion, you're all the same. And which is really funny, if, if I can say if there's any part of this is funny. I mean, I always say, look, if you get two Iranians in a room, you get, two, you get three different opinions. Right. I mean, you just we're as different, as diverse as any part of this planet. 
there's no homogeneity at all. Uh, of course, we may have a tangential line towards you know cultural and religious uh, backgrounds, but uh, and 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 ge geography, but we're just as different. We argue at the dinner table just like anybody else: moms, dads, sisters, brothers, uncles, everybody, the whole thing. Uh, but it's easy when you you know it's difficult to look at the world and just look at a ten-minute soundbite on CNN and then paint everybody with the same brush. Um, it's easy, right? We, uh, this country is very good at that. Um, I would love to know what your what the feedback or reaction has been to your book. Do you feel it's provocative? Do you feel it's challenging the norms? And and some folks are pushing back and trying to write a different version of you know your analysis. People, when they first hear the title, the racial Muslim, their first response is, "Well, Muslims are not a race." And that is true, they are not a race, uh, but they have been racialized. And when they take the time to actually read the book, uh, they appreciate how the first half of the book provides the historical backdrop of the racialization of religious minorities as part of the American story, which were rarely told, or were told in, in, in silos. Okay, there was anti-Semitism. But nobody really looks at how anti-Semitism connects to Islamophobia and connects to anti-Catholicism and connects to anti-Black racism because part of the basis for uh, Protestant English settlers believing that enslaved Africans were inferior was because they were not Christian. Right? They, they saw their religions as no religions at all or heathenism and, and evil. And also 30% of enslaved Africans are reported to have been Muslims uh, from West Africa. So the, the first half of the book looks essentially at how it's not what you look like that races you, because that's the way we understand it in the contemporary era is how dark your skin is, the texture of your hair, the your facial features. But in fact, your religious identity has always been an additional trait that is used to determine are you good or bad? Are you in the in-group or the out-group? Are you someone, are you trustworthy? Are you assimilable? And so what happened uh, in the early 20th century is that as more than 4 million Jews immigrated to the United States uh, due to, for economic reasons, but also for security reasons, because there were increasing anti-Semitic pogroms happening, particularly in Eastern Europe. And they, when they got here, they were considered uh, inferior. They were considered less than, and they faced significant discrimination. And some of it was also theologically based because the Klan was not just a white, the Ku Klux Klan was not just Eastern European Jews as a threat to their white Protestant nationalist uh, uh, notions of what a real American is and what America should be. So they had their own Make America Great motto, which was Northwest European and Protestant. They also saw the Catholics were primarily Italian and to some extent also Irish as a threat. And so when you study that history, you realize that Islamophobia is actually not that new. It's just that you have a new wave of immigrants because 
it wasn't until 1965 that all of the immigration laws that excluded anyone who was Asian from either immigrating to the U.S. or naturalizing to be a U.S. citizen uh, or, or even coming to visit, they were all lifted and the national origin quotas were lifted, which previously from 1924 until 1965, these national origin quotas uh, allowed only two to three percent of people to come from the various countries in Europe. And the, the, the census from which the two to three percent came from was the 1890 census, which is before the wave of Catholic and Jewish immigrants came. So this was intentionally in, passed to Protestantize and Northwest Europeanize the United States. In 1965, those quotas were lifted. And there, that's when you start to see the vast majority of people who are from the sub-Indian continent, from East Asia, from North Africa, from the Middle East, most of them came after 1965. And now their children and grandchildren are in college and they're changing the politics. They're changing the conversations about Palestine. They're changing conversations about US foreign policy in the Middle East. And they're also joining with other uh, minority groups and cross-racial coalitions, joining the Black Lives Matter movement and the Native American movement because they've experienced in the post 9-11 world this racialized existence where they're not in a country where people don't collectively punish them for what al-Qaeda did or what ISIS did or whatever you know terrorist organization in a Muslim majority country has done and they constantly have to prove their loyalty prove they belong prove they love America meanwhile you have the exponential growth of white nationalist groups who are engaging in all sorts of political violence, terrorism against the state, against minorities, you know, whether they're killing people in synagogues of the tree of life or whether they're killing black people in churches uh, or even some of the mass shootings have been racially motivated. And they participated and executed an unprecedented attempted insurrection on January 6, 2021. Yeah. A, a, a direct assault on American democracy by trying to uh, eliminate or uh, invalidate the presidential election votes. So why didn't the government go and infiltrate all the churches, all the conservative political organizations? Why didn't they arrest all the white male conservatives in this country and spy on them and investigate them as they did to many, many, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of Muslims after 9-11 because of white privilege, because of white dominance, because part of having white privilege is that you are presumed innocent, that you are judged by your individual actions, not the actions or bad actions of other people who share your identity. Yeah. That's one of the ways that racism manifests itself. So uh, ultimately what we, you know, that what we all need to be cognizant of is that um, racism, unfortunately, is still a reality that we all need to work towards countering. And that is not simply a black and white issue. And it's not simply an immigrant or non-immigrant issue. And that we're all in 
the same system that socializes us to privilege some groups over others, see other groups, some groups as innocent, others as guilty. And we need to be very conscious of those implicit and sometimes explicit biases. Thank you so much, Professor Sahar Aziz, um, for joining us again. I really learned a lot. I feel like I was in your class. Um, please don't give me a quiz. Uh, but, uh, you know, I do know, I just want to say this, I do know racism is taught. Nobody's born racist. Uh, so that social generational uh, passing of the torch that you mentioned that you articulated, so true. I think as parents, we have a responsibility to teach tolerance to our kids, irrespective of their race or religion or where we are in geography or socioeconomic status. We have a responsibility to the next generation to leave them uh, a more tolerant, uh, a more peace-loving world than the one we inherited. That's our job as parents, right? And as thought leaders as you are. So thank you so much, Professor Sahar Aziz. The book is The Racial Muslim. It's uh, on Amazon and there it is. Uh, it's Sahar uh, azizlaw.com please go get the book it's a wonderful education in uh, the America that we all uh, live and uh, love thank you so much thank you